And to do so, we need to go back to Scripture in the same way John Kaus, uh, in taking us through the series on post-millennialism, the best of all possible worlds, is taking us back to Scripture so that we can be, our beliefs can be grounded with clear texts and clear understanding. I want to do the same with a covenant renewal service. And so these next psalms over these next few weeks are to prepare our hearts and minds and to sort of lay the groundwork on what it means to be a person who belongs to the covenant and then what that actually looks like as we gather together in worship and then, of course, when we go out in the world to serve God there. So if you can, please turn to Psalm 105 and I'll read the first 11 verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a stature, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for our, an inheritance. Well, it goes on to then give Israel's history with Abraham and Moses and, and uh, Joseph and the works of God throughout the land. And so we'll look at that in a moment. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, as we always do, that you would enlighten our mind with a view of changing our heart so that we may read your word carefully, and that, Father God, that we may live faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there must be a reason why God gives us history, and the clearest reason I think you'll find if you read throughout the Old Testament is that God is always known by what he does. And because God is always known by what he does, this is going to provide you with valuable truth as you begin a new season of educating your children. Because if God is known by what he does, then you have understood almost immediately that education alone is not enough to form an individual. Now, we're all in the process of raising our children up with a Christian education, and that's good. But education alone is never enough. And we'll see why as we go through this text. Now, the text isn't about education as such, but it is about how a person is formed in a particular way in order to live faithfully before the Lord. Now, if history really did repeat itself and people read history, then everyone would be very rich and troubled with very little. The truth is history does not repeat itself, yet it is also true there is nothing new under the sun. 
And so the wisdom we need to understand those two statements is one where we begin to appreciate how God leads his people. We also begin to appreciate that sin really does blind people to the things of God and to history. And so when God has given us lessons in the past and we engage in sinful ways, we really must be convinced of what the scripture teaches, that those who give themselves over to other things that are not God become like the very things that they give themselves over to. And so if you're giving yourself over to an idol that has eyes that cannot see, you in turn become like what you worship and cannot see. If you give yourself over to an idol that has ears and cannot hear, then you, in doing so, become like what you worship and cannot hear the things of God. Now, of course, the idols of today are not necessarily statues with ears that can't hear and eyes that cannot see, but anything that therefore takes the place of God has the same effect on your life. And that is, it creates a spiritual dullness to the things of God. And therefore, while it is true that there is nothing new under the sun, we don't learn from history. And the reason we don't learn from history is spelled out in the fact that it doesn't repeat itself, because if it did, then people would be learning from those who came before them, or at least you would have a divergent pattern within scriptures. So notably, what we find here in Psalm 105 is God's providential care and his covenantal love. That God providentially works all things to bring about the faithfulness of his people to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. And God extends his covenantal love, that love that says, I will not let you go. The Hesed love that is a covenantal love, a binding love that says God does not walk away even when you walk away is the very thing that is worked out in all the providences that you will find your life encountering. And so throughout scripture, we will see that we are able to recognize things in the past that relate to us today. In other words, let me put it this way. The only reason why the death of Christ makes any sense to you, there's only really one reason why the death of Christ makes any sense to you. And it is because you believe that what he did, he did for you. And if you don't believe that, then it makes no sense. It is that personal experience of divine grace, which is more than knowledge, that allows you to appreciate that what God has done, he has done for you. And because those two are connected, therefore you understand what he has done. You now begin to appreciate what he is doing. And you begin to see that all the covenantal promises of the past now relate to you in Christ Jesus because every promise of God is yes and amen in him. And so the only reason why covenant theology would make any sense to any of us, the only reason why covenant understanding of scripture would make any sense to any of us is if it has something to do with us. It's the only reason it makes sense. In exactly the same way the death of Christ relates to us is because we recognize that what he did, he did for us. Now it is that connection, which is more than knowledge, it is based in experience, that allows us to understand both the covenant, the covenantal promises, and therefore able to live in the light of what God 
has promised to a thousand generations to come. And so what can be known about God is revealed in what God does in the past, in the present. And so we can learn as sons of Abraham today, as ones who are sons of faith. And so we read Galatians and we begin to realize that when God made the promise to Abraham, he was thinking of people like us because the sons of Abraham are the sons of faith. And so therefore the promises made to Abraham are promises also made to us. And so the reason we relate to them is because we're going back to this very simple principle that the covenant makes sense because it has something to do with me. Jesus' death on the cross makes sense to me because it is for me. And it's that relationship that not only allows us to understand the scriptures, but allows us then to live in light of all the promises that God has made. It's the us impact that what Christ did, he did for you. And if that part is missing, then the life that comes with that is also missing. And this is the very thing that we see in this psalm, or at least reminded of that relationship between a covenantal promise and then the life that comes from living covenantally. So covenant people are those who recognize that what God has done, he has done for them. And by recognizing that, we recognize what God has freed us from and freed us to. We are free from bondage and sin, and we are now free to live faithfully before the Lord our God. And this psalm is an example of how God focuses the attention of his people when their attention is not on God. His providential work and his covenantal love is how God gains your attention. Through the every moment of every day, as Spurgeon said, that even every dust mite in the air is placed there by God. Not a single moment is out of place. But those moments exist so that you would appreciate where you are before God at every single moment. So let's look at this as a summary, uh, Psalm 105. You'll notice that it begins with several imperatives that are and imperative children are things that you must do. Give thanks and make known his deeds, verse 1. Sing praises to him and tell of his wondrous works, verse 2. Glory in his holy name and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, verse 3. Seek the Lord, his strength, his presence continually, verse 4. Remember his wondrous works, his miracles, and his judgments. Now, there's a difference here, but a difference of perspectives. Because when you read through the text and you begin to read uh, that God sent the plagues upon Egypt, is that a miracle or a judgment? Well, it all depends who you are. If you're God's covenantal people, you're not coming under judgment. You're witnessing a miraculous work of God on your behalf. But from the Egyptians' point of view, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing the very judgment of God. And of course, when we get to the cross of Christ, what do we experience? Well, we experience both judgment and mercy. We, there is this combination of the two, but depending who you are depends on how you respond. Hence why I said at the very beginning that the only reason why the cross of Christ makes sense to us 
is because when Christ died, we know he died for us. And so as God's people are coming out of Egypt, they are witnessing miracles while the Egyptians are witnessing judgments. That's the pattern that we see throughout scripture. And so if you look at verse 29 to 36, just as an example, you will find all of these miracles and judgments that are there. The cloud by day, the fire by night, the quail and bread from heaven. All of these are miracles. But the plagues that came upon Egypt are judgments. Even the water that came from the rock in verse 41 that 1 Corinthians 10 points to reminds us that this is Christ. Miracles and judgments. But it all depends on how you're receiving them. Is the cross of Christ an act of judgment or an act of divine love? Well, again, it all depends on your relationship to that moment. When you're in Egypt and the plagues are coming down upon the land, is that a miracle of mercy, of deliverance, or is that an act of judgment? Well, again, it all depends on whether or not you're God's covenantal people or you are rejecting the God of the covenant. So we must appreciate that any Bible knowledge we have only makes sense to us if we fully appreciate that what God has done, covenantally, he has done for you. And then you begin to enjoy the riches of his glorious grace. And so we learn very quickly that a person is not formed by education alone. Education is so important. We must know history. We must know our history or else we'll fall for idols, you know, being told that the idols at Dan and Bethel are the ones that brought us out of Egypt. And the only reason why the Israelites would believe those lies is because they didn't know their history. So it is important to know the truth, to be protected from error, but the education alone doesn't form a person. What forms a person is recognizing that what God has done, he has done for you. And then you have the response. Why? Because who loves God first? Well, God loves us first. And then we love God because he first loved us. That's the relationship time and time again throughout the scriptures. The second point is rather a pertinent one for a number of people. And that is, it is possible for a Christian to collide with the will of God. I've done it frequently. And I'm sure you have, where your life has been planned in a particular way, where you feel that God is with you, and then you begin to collide with God. And the reason you are colliding with God is because God is choosing a different direction than the one you are choosing. And that collision can often be confused because you don't think you're wrestling with God, you think you're wrestling with the world. And it takes you a matter of time before you begin to realize, actually, no, it's not the world that I'm wrestling with, it is actually God. And the lesson that we learn that comes from this is that no Christian or any covenantal person is to wait for calmer times before they trust God. But how tempting we are to not make decisions in difficult times and only trust God when things become calm. That seems to be the temptation of almost every Christian. And what we see here, at least by implication, is that you are not to be the kind of person that waits for calmer times before you begin to trust God. As though I'm gonna wait until the rhythm of my life is under my control and then I can control how much trust I can place in the Lord my God. 
If you do, then you will not be the type of person who can live with trials. You'll be the type of person who will fold at almost any trial that comes your way. And so we learn to trust God at all times, and we need those experiences because without them, we will not become the person that God wants us to be. And so the sermon title, if I have them, which is uh, fairly rare that I stick to them, but I'm going to today, and that is seek God continually. This is not to be left to a morning devotion. <clears throat> this is not to be left to an evening devotion. This is to be in your heart and mind in every step you take. And I was almost tempted to say in every breath you take and quote the police, but I thought, no, that will give away, <laughs> that'll give away my age and what songs that I like. I do like that song, by the way. Um, the psalm is a challenge to remember those who have lived in the past in difficult times. The psalmist could have given us a hundred examples of faith in people in good times, but he doesn't. The examples that he gives us is how God has covenantally worked his people into the people that they are meant to be through difficult times. When things are good and easy, our faith is rarely tested because we begin to default to trusting in ourselves. But it's only at those points when life becomes covenantally difficult. And what I mean by that is, is that when God is providentially taking your life in a direction that you do not know where you are going, you are having to depend on him in ways that you've never depended on him before. Because you've got nothing in your history to tell you what the future will look like. And you've also got nothing in anybody else's history to really tell you what your future looks like. And so God is constantly bringing us back to him. And so the lesson is simple. Do not be the type of person who waits for life to become calmer before you put your trust in him. I'll do it tomorrow when I've got over this problem. I'll do it tomorrow when this is behind me. I'll do it next week, next month, next year, when I've dealt with these things first, as if you're capable of dealing with them on your own without the Lord. But how often do we act and behave that way? Well, we do so because we have forgotten that what God has included us in, he has included us in. We live as though there is a disconnect between us and God when there is no disconnect whatsoever. And so the whole point of understanding that you're a covenantal person is firstly by understanding that what God has done and what God is doing, he is doing for you. Now, you includes all of us here who belong to God, but that's the connection that must never be broken. Because if it is broken in your heart and in your mind, it will then be broken in your practices. You will then educate your children, taking upon yourself a burden that you cannot carry. You will then live within your marriages and deal with difficult times if you have them, and taking upon a burden that you cannot carry. And so their life is too difficult for you to live on your own. Raising children is too difficult for you to do it on your own. Growing up in God's community 
should be the very illustration that you should get immediately. I cannot do this on my own. And this is what God is showing us by knitting together Israel's history, knitting together how these people fall one after the other. And so the many things that we learn about Abraham and the many things we learn about Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and the many others throughout scripture, many times their things are exposed in their lives that they would rather you not know, I'm sure. But they are given to us as examples that we would learn from. And so what I want you to notice is they're not sharing their education with you. They're not telling you what they know. They're sharing their life with you. They're sharing their mistakes, their struggles, their triumphs, their joys, their pains. No one, not at one point do you ever sit down and go, well, well, you might do. Daniel was an educated fellow, or Moses was an educated fellow. You don't get that. What you get is how they trusted God in the environment that God placed them. That's what we learn. And so there is something to be learned, but there is, more importantly, something to be lived. And so when the psalmist here mentions certain people and certain events, what we are recognizing is that in almost every case, all of these people could have collided with the will of God. They could have chosen a way in a, that goes against God. And God providentially works all things together so that you would end up in the place that you should have found by yourself if you only listened to God in the first place. And this is how God works. This is in many ways why people go around in circles. The wilderness wandering is a wonderful example of people ending up in the very place they knew they were going to for 40 years, but didn't get there because of their constant misdirection by colliding with the will of God. You call it sin, call it idolatry, call it forgetfulness, call it whatever you like. But the one thing that is happening at the root of all of it is they're just colliding with God's direction over their life compared to the direction that they themselves are choosing to go in, that is seen in the decisions they make, the things that they worship, the relationships that they have. And suddenly you begin to realize that how is it possible for all these people to know all of this wonderful truth and then still live in a way that's contrary to all of it? Well, because what really matters above and beyond what you know is faithful practice. How faithful are we as God's people in practicing the things that scripture actually teaches? This is where the church goes wrong. This is where a nation goes wrong. This is where businesses go wrong. This is where marriages go wrong. This is where raising children go wrong. It's not that you don't know, but it's rather because you don't practice what you do know. And throughout Israel's history, it's not that they did not know, but rather they did not faithfully practice what they did know. And so at the heart of all covenantal relationships between God's people and between them and God is the question of faithful practice. Education matters, grace matters, covenantal love matters, provident, all of these things matter. But all of these things are to get you to the place where you respond faithfully to what God is doing for you. And if you don't get it, 
If you don't get the fact that what God is doing, he is doing for you, then it's then ever more difficult to really appreciate how you are to respond to the God who is loving you so clearly, so clearly, and yet so often we collide with God and his will. And so the confusion that we have is a confusion that comes from separating ourselves from the covenant, or rather separating ourselves from what the covenant means. That is, what I am doing, I'm doing for you. And the moment you forget that bit, the for you bit, you then no longer see yourself in relationship to the covenant, any of the covenantal promises, or the God who makes those promises. Your relationship with God becomes something of a tandem where who's peddling here? I'm going to let God pedal for a bit. Now I'm going to pedal for a bit. But who's actually steering the handlebars? That this is the type of relationship that you end up in when you forget that you are actually the one on the back of the bike. And that your input matters, but it's God who directs. It is God who takes over. It is God who remains faithful at all points and at all times. And this is something that God's people are to learn today. And we're to learn it from those in the past. There is a providential order to your life. And I want you to understand that. Children, as you grow up, I want you to understand that God will take care of every single one of your steps. I want you to believe that really right in your heart. So that as you grow up and you understand, and perhaps some of you are worried about what you'll do in the future, or even excited, I want you to understand that the direction of your life and the love and the care that you will need to make it there is actually something that God has already taken care of. And that is true for you adults as well. Here we are busy, very busy, looking at the future direction of our children. But don't forget that God is directing your life to a different future as well. This is the blessing of how God works providentially because of his covenantal love. But here's something else to consider. When we look at the lives of those in this psalm, especially the life of Joseph in particular, we can appreciate, perhaps more acutely than any other passage, what it means for God to be providentially involved in something where you could easily have collided with God over. Joseph, as you know, ended up in Egypt completely by the plan and the purpose of God and eventually ended up in a place where he would save the people from famine. Now, of course, none of us sees this at the beginning. Perhaps we do so in the bending of the bags in the vision. I mean, we all get the vision, don't we? The reason why the bags bow down is not only illustrating the brothers, but because what do your shopping bags do the moment you take food out of them? Well, they bend. Why do they bend? Because they're empty. Okay, and so we have this image of empty bags in the middle of a famine, right? And then when they are full, they stand upright. But that is also illustrating the brothers before Joseph. God beautifully, beautifully works all things together so that we may understand the future based on the beauty of the past, of just how carefully God takes care of his people. Think about it another way, that when God saves you in Christ Jesus, 
do you ever think that this is because of a promise that he made to Abraham? Do you ever, do you ever see your history as that history? Or do you simply think, no, this is something God did later on, that I'm an afterthought? That God did this first, and then when I came along, he thought, I'll include him and her as well. Not for a moment. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. You were chosen in Christ a long time ago. And God, throughout history, is bringing you into your reality that is already in the mind and heart of God that is yet to make its way out into the world. So as you read the life of Joseph, read, read a person who could have easily collided with God. Read a person who could have easily forgotten the promises that were made before and even the dreams that he had. The psalm is providing us with a memory of these people as a resource for living now. Not that history will repeat itself, but rather faithful living looks the same whatever generation you're in. And that's the point. It's not that history will repeat itself, but faithful living looks the same whatever generation you're in. And that's why these examples are given to us. You are to seek God continually. And you are to seek God through his word. You are to seek God in prayer. And as you do, the heart of thankfulness springs up and springs over. You are not to live a different way of life. You are to live a covenantal way of life. You are to understand that God who has been faithful in the past is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore will remain faithful to you today, tomorrow, and the years to come. These are the lessons that you are to learn. But they are only ever truly learnt when they come out of scripture and you respond faithfully to them in your life. Only at that point do they go from being a lesson to being something learned. How many lessons have you taken? Five. How many things have you learned? Well, it should be five, but it's not the same. Okay, five birds sitting on a telephone wire deciding to fly south for the summer, how many fly south? Well, I don't know, because the decision to fly south is not the same as flying south. And how often are we convinced that because we have made the decision to do something, it's the equivalent of actually doing it? We haven't. And so understand the difference between the lessons you receive is not the same as the lessons learned. Faithful practice is when you have learned the lesson. The experiences are the lessons. Your response, your faithful response, is when you can truly say, I've learned the lesson that God has sent my way. Well, let me conclude. <clears throat> the psalmist tells us to seek God, to sing his praises, to give thanks to the Lord, to give glory to his name, seek his strength, seek his presence continually. And therefore, it's almost impossible to arrive at any conclusion that ends with this is simply a morning routine, that this is a daily devotion. And don't get me wrong, having that daily prayer, having that daily study, having that daily reading, even talking about the Lord with whoever you're with is important. But this is something 
that must permeate every moment of every day. Will you recognize that your position in the world is one that stands before God, and therefore every response of yours is to be marked by faithful practice? And so notice this, that the direction of your life and the life of your children will not be determined by what they know. It'll be determined by how faithful they are to what they know. Faithful practice is the one thing that determines the lifespan and direction of a church. It is the one thing that determines the lifespan and direction of a marriage. And the same with the raising of your children. Don't think that by educating your children, it is enough. Show them how it's done. Show them how to live in light of the lessons that they are receiving until the lesson is actually learned. And so when you read such passages as you do in 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 15, where Paul is saying, look back, these things are written as an example for us. Not once do you read what do they know or what they knew. Not once do you read how educated they are. What you read is their life was an example for us. And so when you look at a person's life in the past, you can learn one of two things either what to do or what not to do. And this is the lesson that we receive from this psalm. It is an encouragement to seek God continually, but seek him in such a way where your life reflects the things that you're believing, or rather, more importantly, that your life reflects the things that you're being told by God and therefore ought to believe. Amen.